Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 45 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. As promised, we have lined up another special episode this coming week. On Wednesday, we will visit again with David Shapiro and discuss a case that we will, we will mention in prediction sure to go wrong, Beeman versus Friesmeyer, and David's client finally getting a chance uh, to show evidence in court. We're going to cover three arguments today. The first, Umrani versus Sendai Association of North America. Is a first district case involving personal jurisdiction and questions of standing waivers. Pretty interesting case and a very short oral argument. The second, Hudson versus Pate, involves one of our constant themes. You have to ask for something if you want it, and we'll get into more detail on that case. And the third is an insurance case, Westfield Insurance Company versus Federal Insurance Company, a first district case involving statutes of limitations and equitable contribution or subrogation. Uh, imagine, Pat, an insurance case in this podcast with us being the co-host. <laughs> Shocking. Shocking. It is. It is. And uh, uh, one of the things, two of these uh, cases are first district cases. And I mentioned to Pat yesterday, there's a lot of skipping and things on the first district right now. They really need to fix that because it's super annoying when we're listening to oral arguments. You miss parts of questions. You miss parts of answers. And it just... There's, there's just dead air. It's, ga- so. it's, it's random gaps for about five seconds or so, and you think it's your your app, you think it's your headphones, you, re- you it ain't, it's happening to both of us, we don't know why, hopefully it gets fixed. It's not too bad in terms of the substance, but it's very annoying, as Dan says. Yep. Now let's get right to our first case, Umrani. Under Illinois law, can a defendant waive an objection to a plaintiff standing by answering the complaint? and not raising that as an affirmative defense in the answer. Does a letter with the caption of the case that denies generally, though not specifically, the allegations of the complaint qualify as an answer under the Illinois Code of Civil Procedure? So a defendant can waive the objection to standing by answering a complaint, and a letter that generally denies the allegations qualifies as an answer. Is the right to object to standing revived when the plaintiff files an amended complaint with additional allegations? Theories of recovery and defendants. Does the does the answer, in other words, go away? Does a notice of appeal that appeals the dismissal based upon ju- personal jurisdiction, but not standing, and does not identify the order appealed from preserve the dismissal that was based on upon standing? These are among the myriad of questions uh, asked when the Illinois Appellate Court, First District, recently heard argument in Umrani versus Sendai. Association of North America. Uh, as mentioned, the argument is a mere 23 minutes. And what happened here was members of an organization sued those they claimed were responsible for the loss of the organization's tax exempt status. The defendants who had initially responded pro se, or at least some of the defendants with the previously mentioned letters of denial, ultimately engaged counsel who moved to dismiss based on the claim that the plaintiffs lacked standing as the plaintiffs themselves had suffered no cognizable injury. The trial court dismissed the case on the basis that none of the plaintiffs had standing in that same order and then the alternative to the dismissal on the basis of standing. The trial court dismissed some defendants for lack of personal jurisdiction. The plaintiffs timely filed a notice of appeal, but they only mentioned that they were appealing the dismissal for lack of personal jurisdiction. Pat, tell us about this short but interesting oral argument with a lot packed in indeed a lot packed in dan uh thank you it's it, it there there's a ton of issues that i'm not sure there really are answers to uh, on some of these questions but the one there is an answer to is the uh jurisdiction the appellate jurisdiction if the notice of appeal is as described by counsel for appellee the appeal there likely is not appellate jurisdiction and the uh, objection to the dismissal on appeal is likely waived. 
And that's because under Rule 303, Supreme Court Rule 303, you not only have to identify, you either have to identify the order appealed from or the basis, or the, 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 the substance of the ruling that you're appealing from. And in this case, according to counsel for Applee, the only thing that was mentioned was personal jurisdiction, which didn't, which was the alternative basis and only covered some of the defendants. The court dismissed the entirety of the case on standing. So I don't know if that's correct or not. I, I, I honestly, I don't know, but the, the correct, the procedure that I followed when I've done appeals and I'm no appellate lawyer, but I've handled some appeals is I'm appealing from orders, you know, January 5th, 2019 and you know whatever other orders that I'm I have list them all you know the, the the interlocutory orders perhaps but certainly the final order that I'm appealing from at the date that it was entered that's the order the entirety of the order right uh, and then you're probably covered and if you want to add in some of the bases perhaps you could do that but you got to name the order and if they didn't do that they they may have a real problem so that's the first thing so then we come to as Dan mentioned the standing issue and this very strange argument, at least from my perspective, raised by the by the appellants, the plaintiffs below, that somehow standing was waived, or the objection to standing was waived because it wasn't raised as an affirmative defense in those original, obviously deficient answers filed pro se by some of the defendants. Um, I we don't talk about standing much in state court. It's not really much of an issue. They're courts of general jurisdiction. Illinois, the Illinois Supreme Court, following the Rosenbach versus Six Flags case, basically th- said, "Damn near anything gets you into Illinois state court in terms of injury." Right. But these people don't have it. They, they they don't they don't have it. They're they're members of the organization, but they're not the organization themselves. And it's the organization it seems that lost this tax exempt status. This organization is like a cultural group for a certain region uh, of Pakistan, or Pakistani immigrants from a particular region. Um, that seems to be what the what this organization is is for, and and they seem to have lost their tax exempt status in New York. It seems for some reason that's really not relevant to the issues we're discussing, the civil procedure issues. I, I did think though at the, at the beginning, I thought the appellant advocate said he he mentioned some organization. So again, I was confused by why that organization maybe did not have standing. Again, maybe they're not members or maybe they're not on the board or I, I, it's not clear. It, it, was, it wasn't clear. And and if that were the case, you'd think he'd be saying that. He says, yeah, my client is the, or they may have sued in a derivative status, right. trying to sue, you know, but, but, it, but if they were suing a derivative status, they'd have to be shareholders or something. And it wasn't clear that they were, they were mere members, not shareholders of the organization to the extent it's a stock company, for example. So, it was just yeah. unclear what the what what the basis was for standing. Apparently, this went on for years. This case was previously appealed and got dismissed that time for lack of appellate jurisdiction because they hadn't gotten three hundred four A language uh, of of what was an interlocutory order. Um, I also find it very strange that someone could waive an objection to standing if a plaintiff hasn't alleged or can't allege that they were actually injured. I know of very few causes of action where injury of some kind isn't an element. And, and if you're claiming that you're wrong, either whether it's contract or tort, whatever it happens to be, uh, you're going to have to show injury in there. And that's and whether you want to call it standing or failure to meet an essential element of the cause of action, you call it anything you want. Uh, you got to call you got to show injury. And if these people aren't actually injured, okay, fine. You have standing to sue, but you still don't have a cause of action. So what are we doing here? Um, you actually have to be injured. It's kind of like the case we talked about a couple weeks ago with uh, the fellow who was only claiming emotional distress but no physical injury. Therefore, he couldn't bring an ordinary negligence claim. Same kind of idea that he actually suffered injury there. The question is whether that cause of action supports that injury, whereas here – any injury or any cause of action is almost any cause of action. Perhaps injunctive relief may not need injury, maybe, but you're still going to need an actual controversy of some kind. And I'm not sure what they were, didn't seem to be asking for any sort of equitable relief. They seem to be asking for relief at law, which is money damages, which means you actually have to have damages and doesn't seem they had damages. Uh, it's a, it'll be interesting to see what the court does with this. Uh, one of the panel members was Justice Gordon, 
who uh, almost always says, you know, you've brought us a very interesting case and we really appreciate it. I got the sense he actually meant it this time uh, because it really is a very interesting, you're looking at, listening to this, you're going, what in hell is going on here? This is just bizarre. So, but the other subsidiary issue that Dan mentioned is this idea that they, they, they filed these pro se quote answers and the idea that somehow that way this waiver issue, but the question was whether those were answers of the first instance, right? In, in, in Illinois, if you file an answer to a small claims case, the mere, or the, you file an appearance, I should say, to a small claims case, that counts as a general denial. That's not the rule for other kinds of cases where if you file an appearance, you actually have to file an answer that specifically admits, denies, or say you, says you don't know to each of the various allegations, which seemed in this case to number in at least in the dozens, if not more. And so they filed these pro se things and they were inadequate. The court, if they had moved to strike them, the court would have made them answer properly. But apparently what happened is before they had a chance to do that, the complaint was amended. Additional parties were added. Additional theories were added. And then they answered properly because counsel got involved and did it the right way. So problem solved, it seems. I I don't see why. If you move to strike the answer of a pro se, I mean, that may happen. Certainly it should happen. But they're going to get a chance to fix the mistake. It's not. They're not going to deem the facts admitted in the complaint. That's not how this works. Uh, we don't. Do, the, the, the the law generally abhors defaults of that kind, especially with regards to pro ses. He's gonna, the judge is going to give the the pro se litigant time to get a lawyer, time to figure it out themselves. They're not going to just say, "Oh, too bad, you're done, all, all over." That that's that's how it may work in some states. It's not how it works in Illinois, and certainly not how it works in Cook County. Uh, very liberal in terms of in terms of those things, and by liberal I mean giving away extra chances. Uh, not political liberal, liberal in terms of giving away extra chances to make sure we try cases on the merits, as opposed to default or something along those lines. Dan, a- anything else on on this? We may have spent as much time talking about the case as they they did argue it about it. The only thing I'll say, Pat, is is one of the issues with nonprofits is is that nobody owns them. Hmm. That there's no, there, you can't be a shareholder of a nonprofit uh, with the theory that they belong to the public. There's certain exemptions, whether it's a 501c6 or a c3, like this probably was. And so that may be part of the problem here is that even if you're a board member, again, you don't really have a stake in the outcome. There's no injury that by losing the status, nobody's personally injured. You can't have personal benefit. And so maybe that, that really wasn't addressed in the 23 minutes. But I think that's part of the issue here is who exactly has standing the attorney general might right to argue that you know somehow uh lost you know contributions or they filed returns that are no longer valid uh but uh yeah an interesting case and uh you know i I think you're right justice gordon was was probably saying that this was an interesting case because it's uh uh you know, well, it, it, was able to cite provisions of the code of civil procedure that dealt with some of the issues or even case law interpreting right. them because they were so bizarre Right. And, and like you said, these letters, it, it, for, from what I gathered, they were very brief. They, they were just blanket denials, like we deny what's in the complaint or something. They were on, you know, one pagers, it sounded like, or, or so. And and only four of the, there, there were like multiple defendants eventually, and only four actually filed these pro se letters. So that's a... Uh, I get them from time to see. time in my practice, which, you know, and, and you, you the judges will instruct them, tell they give them, a, they notice them to the whole help desk. Here's how you do it. You know, this kind of a thing, or they give them time to get a lawyer, whatever it happens to be. Usually that gets corrected. So with that, we'll take our first break and come back and talk about Hudson. We'll be talking in a minute. We're back for segment two of episode 45 of the Podium and Panel podcast, and we're going to talk about one of the recurring lessons of the cases we've talked about on the show. If you don't ask, you don't get. In fact, we called episode 37 just that. In Hudson versus Pate, the Illinois Appellate Court, 4th District, recently heard oral argument in a defamation case in which the complaint was dismissed without allowing the plaintiff to conduct discovery. And it was based upon a letter that was attached to this complaint. Uh, and the court heard oral argument about uh, this plaintiff wanting to take discovery 
in order to find out if there were other letters uh, about that that may have been sent by this defendant about this plaintiff. Um, the case arises from an email allegedly sent, apparently under a pseudonym, to a national consumer website for a brokerage that plaintiff alleged called his professional integrity into question, which if it did, I think would be per se defamation as opposed to per, per quad. We've talked about that distinction before. Um, but the trial court found that the email, without knowing all the other facts around this, didn't defame the plaintiff. It just said, okay, that's interesting and not particularly flattering, but it's not defamatory. Um, the plaintiff sought to do a forensic exam of the defendant's computer to find out what else he had done. But one of the justices pointed out, discovery cannot be conducted on a complaint that doesn't state a cause of action to the point what relevance could be ascertained from a complaint that doesn't survive. And the, ju the justices wanted to focus on what's this letter say? That's your complaint. That's what you've got. That's all you got. You don't get to go hunting around for other stuff in the middle of not having anything that gets you out, gets you even to the starting gate, never mind out of the starting gate. Uh, so, Dan, what? Uh, <laughs> tell us more about this oral argument that seemed to be um, some lessons on what not to do. Thanks, Pat. And uh, yeah, a couple things. First of all, as you mentioned, you know, the theme, if you don't ask, you don't get uh, one of the starting blocks right out of the uh, out of the blocks. The question was, did you seek leave to amend the complaint? And the advocate for appellant said no, because I believe it states clearly a cause of action for defamation. Then, it, the, as you mentioned, uh, the justices kept saying uh, A11 in the record was this actual email that was sent. Uh, and, and it might be beneficial for listeners to understand a little bit of the underlying kind of thing that's happening here. Uh, the plaintiff in this case, uh, his daughter, uh, was injured by, uh, the defendant's son, I believe it was in some car accident or something. It wasn't quite clear. I what, couldn't, what I couldn't figure it out. Was. So I'm glad you were able to discern it. But, but in any event, uh, that was taking place and then somehow, the allegation against the plaintiff was that he was going to personally benefit financially from the lawsuit. Oh, that wasn't in the email itself. The, uh, the plaintiff was a realtor. The defendant's another realtor and a competitor. Like you said, somebody anonymously submitted an email that called into question the integrity of the plaintiff's uh, real estate deals and said that he was trying to just financially benefit from all these deals and, and lacked integrity. And so would no longer be used by uh, individuals that went to some national uh, poster board. Yeah, they, they uh, were what, they were competing. One guy's with Remax, and the other was with Berkshire Hathaway or something. Yep, and, yep. and and God forbid somebody try to benefit from brokering insurance or brokering a real estate transaction. Somehow that's against the rules. I don't I don't get that. Right, and, and you know the the appellant came out of the gates suggesting that the trial court had had four. Uh, sets of errors that, that he was asking to uh, th this court to overturn. And like I said, the, uh, one of the justices asked, asked him if there was leave for amendment. He said no. The justice followed up with, does that impact our analysis here? And he answered, don't believe so. The plaintiff complaint clearly states a cause of action. Um, and then he turned to this bizarre uh, uh, commentary for about three minutes. He talked about Walter Isaacson and his book Codebreaker about a doctor who developed the CRISPR for, for DNA uh, uh, and RNA solutions that involves COVID and other things. And he talked about one passage was directly on point that there's two science fiction books, 1984 and Brave New World and Information Tech by Big Brother. And again, I think the justices just let him go on because they had no idea what in the hell he was actually talking about i mean it, it's it goes on for about three minutes i think and um i listened to it twice i couldn't figure out what that had to do with whether either. there was defamation alleged yeah or and, why and, he was uh, entitled to discovery you know again one of the things that i think is, again a theme of ours as well not only about asking for what you want and if you don't you know it's kind of like the rolling stones you don't always get what you want but you you, you don't get what you don't ask for i mean that's kind of a, a theme here the other theme here, though, that we've talked about is uh, being careful, uh, whether it's a panel 
it's the trial court, it's it's the Supreme Court of the United States or the Illinois Supreme Court to have respect and deference to uh, the panel. Uh, at one point, the appellant uh, responded to one of the justices by calling her judge and uh, various, uh, I made multiple notes of it. He also, uh, uh, at the end in his, in his uh, rebuttal, uh, he said, <laughs> direct line, that he was bewildered at the court's confusion <laughs> over the, the, the law of defamation. And, you know, uh, he, he mentioned it at several times that he said you know, he would respond to questions. He said, I just can't believe the confusion that's taken place here. Um, you know, this is defamation. One of, the, one of the things he tried to rope in, and again, very, very bizarre, I don't know the underlying fact pattern fully, but there was, a, there was a, an email that forwarded this anonymous email to the, the regular marketplace. And again, it didn't say anything. All it said was, here's an email we received. It's posted on our national consumer uh, list. And again, it doesn't, it's, doesn't have specificity in it. So it's not like if you read that, you would necessarily know alone. Yeah, the, the it, you, you're referring to the appendix. A10 has yeah. the publication. Right. A11 has the substance of the email he's complaining about. Oh, no. A10 is defamatory, too. How? Yeah. It's just and, the publication. It's like how it got out to the world. It wasn't the allegedly defamatory statements, whatever those were, which apparently the trial court held weren't. Right. Um, and in this case, when the with the appellee set up, the appellee was was a, a much shorter uh, argument, but the appellee did a very nice job because the appellant was also citing all these cases about the criteria and and you know publication of various facts. And the appellee took each of those cases and said, in this case, someone was saying that there was a cartoon uh, convention or something, and, and that it was a fake date, and, and so. Uh, that proved itself within the context of the document itself. Um, in, other, in other cases, uh, it was very clear what the defamation was. And again, uh, the, uh, the, the the arguments in, in uh, uh, the appellant's case, uh, again, he's trying to, like you said, extend the publication itself to uh, the uh, uh, thing of pate. And the other the other thing that the justices were pushing the appellant on was again this argument that uh, no discovery was granted on this one email, and and the justices were I think perplexed by it because they said, look, that there was nothing there, right? There's no if we're just looking at that email, and we're looking at the the rules and laws in the state of Illinois that are defamation. This 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 email doesn't qualify because again it doesn't identify profession it doesn't identify anything and so the, the uh, and again he was trying to argue well there might be other emails and they said well you, you could have amended your complaint to argue that but again you did not seek leave to amend your complaint and so again uh, not to, to me from from the justices questions and things I, I, I think appellants gonna get a, a goose egg here. I just don't see how this court is going to do anything else. And Pat, did I miss anything in this case? I mean, it's just no, I, unusual. I, no, I don't think you did. There, there's, it, it's, it's just bizarre. <laughs> it's a really bizarre case, and uh, hopefully, we'll learn some more when we get the uh, when we get the opinion and uh, clear some of the uh, things up that are a bit strange. Um, so, with that, uh, we'll take our next break and come back with uh, Westfield versus Federal Insurance Company. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for segment three of episode 45 of the Podium and Panel podcast. And our third case today is Westfield. And, the, and here, a number of questions are raised by it. First, does the statute of limitations for contribution claims apply to disputes between insurers seeking equitable contribution and subrogation? 
That is the initial question the Illinois Appellate Court First District will address when it decides Westfield Insurance Company versus Federal Insurance Company that was recently argued. Westfield and Federal insured Gregory and, and Westfield defended Gregory, but Federal denied a defense, contending it was excess under its other insurance clause. Uh, what And Pat will get into that a little bit. Uh, uh, there may be a good argument there. Um, Westfield paid a $42,000 settlement during trial, of which $25,000 was funded by Gregory, as that was his deductible under the Westfield policy. The settlement specifically provided that Westfield retained its right of contribution against Federal. Several years later, Westfield obtained an assignment of Gregory's rights against Federal. And four years after the settlement, Westfield sued Federal. Federal moved to dismiss on statute of limitations grounds, citing the 735 LCS 513-204. The statute will be linked in the comments, and Pat will talk about it momentarily. The trial court dismissed a complaint. Pat, tell us about oral arguments in this what appears to be a case of first impression on this issue. So the uh, thanks, Dan. The court, the trial court, dismissed it on the statute of limitations. And as Dan mentioned, this is Section thirteen two hundred four of the Code of Civil Procedure. So I'm just going to read Section A. In instances where an underlying action seeking recovery for injury to or death of a person or injury or damage to property has been filed by a claimant, which seems to be what the underlying dispute was. No action for contribution or indemnity may be commenced with respect to any payment made to cl that claimant more than two years after the party seeking contribution or indemnity has made the payment and discharge of his or her liability to the claimant. Now, on its face, that would seem to be applied to what is here an equitable contribution claim, where Westfield is claiming that they, along with federal, are co-insurers, co co-primary insurers of Gregory. And that because uh, federal breached his duty to defend by neither defending nor filing a declaratory judgment action, it is therefore stopped from raising its policy defenses, including its other insurance clause. Therefore, they need to pay up. But then, you know, okay, I've never, th this, that would seem on its face, but let's go to section B. In instances where an underlying action been filed by by a claimant, no action for contribution or indemnity may be commenced more than two years after a party seeking contribution or indemnity has been served with process in the underlying action or more than two years from the time that party or his privity knew or should have reasonably known of any act or omission. It's plain they're talking about the tort, tort contribution, not what amounts to contract contribution or right. equitable contribution of the kind we're talking about here. I think it's mixing apples and oranges. I think the reason why this has never been addressed is because in the context of this statute, they're talking about contribution amongst joint tortfeasors, right. not contribution amongst insurers. Um, so I, I, I really struggle with the opinion of the trial court, and we'll see what the, um, what the appellate court does with that. Turning to the merits, which is where counsel for Westfield wanted to spend most of his time, uh, he, he discussed the estoppel doctrine. And Illinois is a bit unique in having this doctrine that says that where uh, an insurer neither defends under reservation nor files a declaratory judgment action or does both, as is often the case, an insurer will do both those things then they are stopped from raising their policy defenses, which in this case is arguably the other insurance clause, which apparently is a pretty unique insur other insurance clause that federal insurance has and that Westfield argued uh, doesn't get them where they where Westfield uh, wants, where rather federal wants to go. Uh, we'll, we'll see what, what happens there. The, um, the court didn't seem very taken with that uh, argument uh, and Essentially, the idea is, is that inequitable contribution is that one insurer that steps up and defends shouldn't be stuck holding the bag for the other the other insured. The, the thing that I found a bit bizarre about Westfield's argument here was, is they said, well, federal, you should have at least paid the deductible under Westfield's policy that Gregory had to pay. And we're going, in my experience, deductible is part of the insurance that you bought. It's right. not something separate and apart from the insurance. It's part of the insurance. And 
it doesn't the, the an excess carrier doesn't drop down to fill in a, in a deductible when the insured finds themselves in the unique position of having to pay their deductible. Uh, that's what they contracted for with the primary insurer, which if correct, Westfield was, which means that uh, Gregory needed to pay the 25 grand that then would trigger whatever obligation Westfield had. And if, and if under, if federal's correct, then the only the exhaustion of Westfield's policy and all other primary policies because we have horizontal exhaustion under Kojima, would then trigger any excess obligation that uh, uh, federal might have had. So a, a bit, a bit of a strange. Race is a very interesting issue. I, I don't understand Westfield's position here, at least with respect to the deductible. I, I, I don't understand the trial court's position with regards to the statute of limitations. Would be very interested to see what happens there. I. I I'm not sure when that statute would begin to run. Um, And it seems to me that it's more appropriate. This is a contract dispute between two insurers. Um, Yes, they don't have a contract directly, but it's through the insured. And that's why they got the assignment from the insured to go after federal for having allegedly abandoned the insured. Um, And they not only got an assignment of his breach contract rights, but also rights under, it seemed, bad faith and uh, and other, other theories. So I'm I, very interested to see how this case turns out. Um, it's a lot of ink to be spilled and a lot of money to be paid on a claim that ain't all that big. Right. But, these, but apparently they've dug in and they're going to fight. And, and that's just how it's going to be. Uh, federal don't want to pay. Westfield wants them to pay. There's no apparently no meeting in the middle. And off we go. So for $42,000, people, we're going to... Yep. We're going to get a we're going to get some crazy ruling um, on a on a rather arcane issue. Dan, anything else to say about that one? You know, I, th- I think one one of the things the the uh, federal advocate mentioned, and, and I haven't seen the actual language, but if they're right, Westfield's uh, other insurance provision is very specific, which is unusual, but it lists specific types of policies that it's excess over, and it all like it says it's primary unless one of the a through G or whatever types of policies or uh, where it's not primary uh, kicks in. And and it didn't sound like anything uh, of those listed w- would kick in. So again, I, yeah, I'm not sure what Westfield's trying to do here and why they would spend money. You know, they, they tried this and now that's at the appellate level, it's got to be more than the $42,000 that's uh, been spent already on this case and oh. not sure what the outcome here is. Don't know. I, 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 I don't know. So that takes us to our uh, prediction, sure to go wrong. Do we want to do those first or do how we did last week? Let's do how we did. Uh, okay. We always do. And so our record's now 46, 10, and 3. We're in double digits on losses, and uh, that's because we had a 1 and 2 record last week. So, and Dan, it, we're not going to – We early on we talked about we're going to go like the Bears. Well, I don't know one thing. We're not going to go like the Bulls. We're going to unless we unless we go on a hellacious run, we're going to have more than 10 losses before we get to 82 82 games. I um, think so. I think I think we're we're not going to we're not going to replicate uh the uh late 90s Bulls going 72 and 10. That's not that's not in the cards for us. Unless we have a run and again uh, yeah, I, I think you know as we've talked about, you know, and, and the longer the cases sit around and don't get decided and suggest, you know, that there's either issues with the with the rulings or it's taken a long time to to you know, kind of sift through the facts. That's right. So, That's right. For the first case was Wiley versus Schaefer. Um, and this is a case uh, that involved the medical malpractice uh, under the doctrine of forum nonconvenience that we covered a few weeks ago. Uh, the, the appellate court made clear they would have come to a different conclusion. But as Pat and I have talked about, uh, they affirmed the judgment of the trial court uh, because they said that there was no abuse of discretion and the de- denial of the motion to transfer. And this was a, a case between St. Clair County and uh, Madison County. Uh, so, so you mentioned that, you know, we, we talked about St. Clair and Madison County. Um, you know, really, does someone wants to go from St. They're going to do better in Madison than doing St. Clair. The J&J just had a talc, an ovarian cancer talc trial that ended this week, and they got a not guilty uh, in St. Clair County. Yeah. Uh, not so long ago, just before the pandemic, they got hit for billions, as in with a B, 
uh, of over four billion, subsequently reduced to just over two billion, uh, in St. Louis City, city of St. Louis, across the river. Uh, so uh, maybe St. Clair's not all bad for them. Uh, maybe it is, but they really wanted to be in Madison County. <laughs> yeah, and it was it, it was interesting because when you posted about this uh, decision, there was a lot of that question about like who the heck would not want to be in Madison County or want to be in St. Clair County. This is why the down there that the, these cases we see constantly uh, motions to move by one party or the other because again they're trying to figure out. Uh, off of the defendants, of course, because the planners get to pick there for them. But but we see the defendants moving if they can, because uh, as Pat just said, you can be a few miles away, but billions of dollars distance. So that, that's, that's across a whole river and maybe right. another state. But right. I just point that out as two very similar cases against the same defendant, and you get a radically different result on liability. Uh, Right. Uh, so maybe maybe the defendants won't be so bad in St. Clair, but I think it has more to do with who the lawyer is, who's on the plaintiff side, who's very who's who's based in St. Clair and is is uh, does very well there. Not that he can't do well in Madison too. I know he has, but I, I just point that out is is that's uh, you know just grist for the mill on where you want to be. Very um, true. One of the issues the court pointed to is that there was no evidence from anybody as to the relative congestion of Madison and St. Clair, as if the appellate court couldn't take judicial notice of that if they wanted to. Um, everyone can use the the report of the office of the uh, um, Illinois courts to get that answer. But So I imagine the answer is there isn't much of a difference. Right. Um, there also was a concession and oral argument by the appellants that they did work in St. Clair County, which they probably had to this is the hospital institution itself had offices. They had probably had to just concede. It's why they didn't bring it up. It's like, it's there. What are we going to do? Right. Um, and also a forfeiture of the argument by the defendants that the plaintiff didn't put anything in the record as to care in St. Clair. Uh, you know, they didn't put, they, they didn't put any, um, anything in the record on that. So a lot of lessons on, on how to deal with these things, but yep. a, uh, a really uh, important case in terms of setting out uh, what you should do, how you should do it. And the appellate court seemed that if the trial court had come to a different conclusion, so, so would the, so would they have. So right. Right. Kind of gives a sense of where they're at. If you, if you can win one of these things. Yep. So Dan, that brings us to Beeman versus Friesmeyer. And why don't you introduce that one while I try to get queued up our next little segment here? Sure. We got this uh, one wrong gladly. This is the case that David Shapiro had argued that we discussed in episodes four and five of the podcast, and we will again interview David Shapiro. Uh, this is uh, was the third trip of this case to the Supreme Court of Illinois, and on the third uh, time it was the charm. This is the case that involved uh, his client from Rockford, uh, who was alleged to have killed his former girlfriend down in Bloomington. Uh, there was evidence that he was up in uh, Rockford area at a bank and that his uh, youth minister had called. And what what happened was that uh, uh, he, he filed suit against Friesmeyer. Uh, the appellate court was reversed and questioned. Well, for, well, for, first, he was convicted of murder. Right. And then released after 13 years because of a Brady violation. That's right. And then he sued for malicious prosecution against Friesmeyer and the other detectives. Uh, and yep. that's been to the appellate court, this, the Seventh Circuit once, and the Supreme Court twice now. And they finally said he can he can proceed with his malicious prosecution case, which is which is uh, yeah a win for him. Uh, and uh, there there was a dissent on the probable cause element, and the majority Plan B to guy. You say what is Plan B? So we're gonna explain what Plan B is here for in a moment. So plan B is a tech tactic used by the lawyers in the practice, which was a television show of the late 90s and the early aughts. Um, 
I, I saw a CLE many years ago that uh, kind of tried to teach ethics through popular culture and television shows and whatnot. And he said that show should have been renamed The Unethical Practice uh, because <laughs> that's what they were. They were extraordinary. Don't do any of the things these people or very few of the things these people decided to do. Right. Um, the uh, So plan B is where they essentially get someone on the stand and they try they accuse that person of murder in order to create a reasonable doubt. Dan said that the uh, Supreme Court plan beat a guy. Boy, did they ever. Oh. Uh, the, the Murray guy, uh, who we had talked about on the previous episodes, this was the former lover, drug dealer to the to the uh, plaintiff or to the deceased uh, who didn't complete the first polygraph, didn't show up for the second polygraph, lived in town, didn't have, you know, had means motive opportunity just as, yeah, you know, had means motive and opportunity was never ruled out by the uh, by the by the investigators and had a pending domestic violence charge against him that was in which the arresting officer was Friesmeyer. So, uh, yeah, they yeah. basically pointed the finger at Friesmeyer or strike that at Murray for dozens of pages. Uh, of that opinion and, and the facts I just reiterated, and I think I got them all. I may not have, but I think I got them all are repeated throughout the opinion to support as they walk through each of the elements. Cause they're like, we are done with this case. Here's right. the deal. There's pro there wasn't probable cause to arrest Beeman. And there are questions of fact on each and every one of the elements. We don't want to see you people anymore until after the case is tried. Go try the case. That's essentially what they were saying. We are done with this, uh, and that's why they went well beyond what they need, what they would have needed to do to simply answer, to simply address the appeal. They went through everything, so there's no question about somebody filing some other motion that gets this thing kicked somehow. No, go try the case. Go try the case. He, he, go go have a trial, and then come back to us maybe, or better yet, go settle it. You 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 get you railroaded this guy. Pay him money is really what they're saying. But at the very least, try the case. Um, interesting, Dan, that there was a dissent. Uh, you, you you mentioned that who basically said there was probable cause to arrest uh, Beeman. Uh, I don't know about that. I, I'm not. Uh, I I have my doubts. Um, but it is. It was joined by one justice or two. I think uh, I think one, but, but, but we're seeing we're seeing more splits yeah, we are. in the Supreme Court on civil cases. I, I don't follow the, the the criminal cases, but we're seeing more splits uh, in in the court than we have than at least in my recollection. Maybe that's not empirical, but based upon my sense of things, we're seeing more splits as the Constitution, and by Constitution I mean makeup of the court has changed in the last year. Yep. Um, we'll see if that trend continues or if that's even a trend. We'll have to look into that further. Yeah. Anything else on that other than we're going to talk to, to David on uh, Wednesday afternoon? No, I think uh, I look forward to talking to David and getting his reaction. And and uh, This is a case he's handled since the day he started in 2012 right. with, the with the center that I think it's the MacArthur Justice Center he's with. Yep. It he's is. been handling that thing since the, it was the first case he got put on his desk. Uh, and so there we go. The next case was another Illinois Supreme Court decision, uh, Indec versus De Podesta. Uh, we got this one wrong too. This was a four-three. This is the case with the energy speculators, who um, oral argument didn't reveal uh, how much uh, thieving they had done no. uh, allegedly of the uh, of their of Index proprietary information and use of their equipment as they were setting up their own deals. So that was, uh, that was interesting. And they held the court held that they had not usurped. I got that right. They did not right. usurp a corporate opportunity because this was a unique situation where both entities could have taken advantage of the opportunity and therefore it wasn't actually usurped. The dissent said that doesn't make any sense. Uh, it, it can't be that, they just they they needed to bring it to their employer and they didn't and that's a breach of fiduciary duty. And I agree with the dissent in this case, just given the the oral arguments at least. And again, I think one of the interesting 
uh, notes that, that comes out of some of these uh, decisions, including Beeman or any of these cases, when we get the prediction sure to go wrong, right or wrong, is that sometimes the actual opinions reveal a lot of stuff that's in the records that never came up during oral argument. And so um, it's, it's always good sometimes to get kind of that flavor on the back end to see, you know, and it explains sometimes why we do get cases wrong. Yep. Uh, we have to come up with excuses. Right, right, right. And even our even our homemade algorithm can't cure. Can't That's right. Cure those. That's right. <laughs> it's a very forgiving algorithm, as it turns out, for uh, for our predictions. With that, with, we've got our our predictions for this week. Umrani, what do you think about Umrani? Affirmed. I, I agree. I, I don't see much of a. I, I look forward to the reasoning, but I think affirmed. And I think the same in Hudson. If you, you think Hudson I think affirmed. Affirm. I'm not nearly as interested in the reasoning. Nah. <laughs> it'll be it'll be interesting to see if they even talk about his yeah his just arc. basically like uh, no yeah, yeah. Your, that may your, be the that may be the, the opinion no your, your culture references and things no not not taking it yeah and then, and then Westfield when, yeah Westfield versus Federal um again confirmed I, I you think they're going to hold that it's barred by the statute of limitations uh. Well, that, that no. The interesting thing is, is I think that the underlying thing, regardless of statute of limitations, I think Westfield's got a hard battle to actually get victory. But no, on the statute of limitations, no, I think you're right. I think yeah, I, I, that but that's that, the that issue upon which yeah, that, that's, that's the opinion that's yeah. at issue, and the court didn't seem the trial court didn't seem to reach that issue. Now, the appellate court could affirm nonetheless because it's in the record. But I, I, I think on the statute of limitations issue be, that I, I think that's going to get reversed. I too. I'm not going to hazard a guess because I don't have a, I don't know enough about the policy. I don't know enough about the other things to speak to the propriety of whether there is actually an estoppel here or not. I kind of doubt it, but yeah. I, I don't have enough to, to offer an opinion on that. I, I, but I do think the statute of limitations argument. I, I don't understand how that works, but I'm very, again, very interested to hear what that's all about. I agree, I agree with you. Yep. Uh, Dan, that brings us to the rule of the week. Yep. And today's uh, rule of the week is based on some recent decisions in Illinois. And we've d discussed some of them on the podcast on lawyer malpractice and the rules of professional conduct. And as you posted, Pat, uh, last week, consistent with the recent decision of Corey versus New, uh, the Illinois Appellate Court Second District recently held even more clearly than it did in Corey that the rules of professional conduct are a mere guide and are for disciplinary measures, but they don't form the basis of a finding of misconduct uh, in a court of law by a lawyer. And in this case, in Rhea State of Weber, the court reversed the holding of the trial court that a lawyer was labored under a conflict when they saw recovery of attorney's fees in a divorce proceeding. Uh, there's allegations um, that Rule 1.7 uh, conflicts had ensued, and the appellate court held it was air for the trial court to apply Rule 1.1 Rule 1.7 uh, and and uh, find that the uh, attorney uh, had violated that and therefore was actionable. And and so again, I you know. We've talked about a number of legal malpractice cases over the last uh, number of months on various episodes. And so I think it's important because we, we had that case with the husband and wife and there was rules of professional conduct. That was the core. That was the Corey case. That was Corey. Uh, but we've had other cases as well. There were a lot of legal malpractice cases. One episode, that's all we covered was legal malpractice cases, including Corey. And so... I, I think it just makes sense that these rules of professional conduct themselves are not, you know, they're not uh, causes of action. You can't be found liable in a course of law for those. You may be subject to discipline by the ARDC uh, if you get investigated, but I just think it's a good, uh, a good line of cases. Well, two comments. First of all, this is really a separate, this is almost like a separation of powers issue. Yep. The Supreme Court under Illinois' constitution regulates the courts and the, and the lawyers, therefore, who practice before it. And it has chosen to give the disciplinary function not to the courts, but to the ARDC. 
And the the in Ray Weber case made it clear that it was improper to shift the burden to the lawyer to prove that she or he, I couldn't tell which, the lawyer was not laboring under a conflict, which would be the opposite of the burden that would have to be shown by the ARDC in a disciplinary proceeding. And they basically say, go to the, go to the ARDC uh, and find out if the person, uh, the lawyer was laboring under a conflict. The other thing is, and it's a case we've talked about, Christo versus uh, Law Office of Thomas Leahy. Uh, and that's going to be the subject of my column this week in the uh, Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. And we talked about this last week as well, um, or a different aspect of this case, where they find the lawyers to have um, breached their duties under essentially under 1.14, which is the, the diminished capacity rule, um, and not assigning a guardian, where the rule is a may, and they essentially made the the standard for professional negligence a must. A must, yep. So they've turned it. it so it, we really need some clarity here, because the the Christo case is is a real problem in this regard. Um, and so we'll see how this shakes out um, in terms of professional negligence and versus the rules. And they, they, they serve different purposes. And but it can't be that the rule that the, the rules are more loose than the standard. It doesn't seem that that would be proper than for the standards of professional negligence. One one lawyer who represents lawyers, uh, and take that for what therefore take that for what it's worth. <laughs> uh, with that, Dan, uh, I think that's all we've got on rule of the week, and uh, we'll talk to everybody on Wednesday. The um, the episode will be released Wednesday evening. We hope. Sounds good. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.